This evening, I'd like to uh, talk about one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I'm going to do it a little differently than I ever have before. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? Uh, you know, I do new amazing facts just about every week. You know, every now and then we have a rerun. Uh, I think this week, Pastor Ross, I'll be here. He'll be doing the program. But one that came to us recently is regarding the Endicott pear tree. And it's a fascinating history. Among the first wave of English settlers that came to the shores of Plymouth Rock back in 1629 was a Puritan named John Endicott. And they asked him to be the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And he was given the task of trying to make the settlers coming from Europe feel at home. Most of them were Puritans that were fleeing religious persecution over there. And uh, it was a strange environment. They didn't have a lot of the same scenery and, and uh, trees and shrubs. And so he imported from his estate in England a pear tree. And uh, there is some record that as he planted the pear tree, his children said, uh, this appears to be good soil, and I hope this tree as it takes root in this new country will be here long after we're gone. There was something just he was musing out a prayer. Well, that tree did not only outlive John Endicott, it outlived his children and his grandchildren and many generations beyond that. Now, that was 1630 when it was planted. 1760, it was being celebrated as a very old tree. By 1809, it was such a famous tree that they sent a box of the pears from this pear tree to President John Adams, and he wrote a letter thanking them for it. Um, the pears, though, were not especially tasty. They weren't bad, they were just sort of average, but just the idea of what it lacked in flavor, it made up for in endurance. In the 19th century, it in, that pear tree survived many hurricanes, some drought, all kinds of extreme weather. In 1964, vandals went by the tree and uh, hacked it up. But even though they sort of butchered the branches, it continued to sprout and it fully recovered. And now that tree is still alive and producing pears 383 years after it was planted. It's in Danvers, Massachusetts. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He will be like a tree. Turn to me in your Bibles to the book of Hezekiah. No, it's the book of Luke. Sorry, just checking. Luke chapter 19. There is no book of Hezekiah. Some of you are still looking through your contents. <laughs> Luke 19, a familiar story. You only find the story of Zacchaeus one place in the Bible, unlike some of the other stories are repeated through the, the Gospels. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. 
trees. You know, you find trees from cover to cover in the Bible. The whole episode of sin and the test revolved around how people responded, our first parents, to the right tree and the wrong tree. And we all hope to be in that kingdom. And you find in the last chapters of the Bible that there on either side of the river grows the tree of life. And not only is it in the end of Revelation, in the very beginning of Revelation, in his messages to the churches, he says to him that overcomes, I will give of the fruit from the tree of life. I always thought it was interesting in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, it begins by Jesus. He meets Nathanael and he says, Ah, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael says, Master, how do you know me? He said, I saw you when you were under the tree praying. He actually says under the fig tree praying. Starts under a tree. One of the great visions in the story of Daniel, you can find this in Daniel chapter 4, talks about this vision King Nebuchadnezzar has of this great tree. You find that in Daniel 4, and I'll just read verse maybe 10 through 12. These were the visions of my head while on my bed I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth. It says, you know, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong, and its height reached to the heavens. And it could be seen to the ends of the earth. And its leaves were lovely, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. And the beasts of the field found their shade under it, and the birds of heaven dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And you know the story. Daniel comes and interprets that and tells Nebuchadnezzar that he is the tree. And that king, because of his pride, was going to be abased, but he would not be destroyed. The roots would be left in the ground, and he would return after seven times. I've always wondered sometimes also if that vision was not telling us something about Jesus, who is the king of kings, and all the earth was fed by him, and all were shaded and supplied, and he humbled himself and came down to the earth, and he bore all the sins and then he resurrected and was restored to his glory. It's almost, almost like there's an analogy in there, but I don't want to take that too far because I know there's a lot of good theologians out there that'll discover my caveman theology. <laughs> All through the Bible, you have these stories about trees. And the Bible says in Isaiah 65, verse 22, for as the days of a tree, so are the days of my people. And mine elect will long enjoy They'll long enjoy the work of their hands. You know, I guess one reason I'm interested in trees is because I spent several years and my occupation was up in the trees. I don't mean up in the trees. I lived in a cave, but I didn't live in trees. But I mean, I was up in the woods. You know what the most dangerous occupation is according to the insurance industry? People think it's crab fishing, firemen, roofers, and those are dangerous. But statistically, the most dangerous occupation is logging. More people die per 100,000 from logging. And I believe it. I, that's what I did, basically. I was selling firewood, cutting down trees, skidding trees, 
driving a dozer through the trees, working with a chainsaw, and a lot of close calls with widow makers. But the reason I say that is I also sort of developed an affection for trees. Now, I'm not a tree hugger. I would cut them down. But I, the big ones I'd cut down, they were dead or sick, and, you know, they were making firewood. You don't want to cut down the good trees. And um, you, they just all had character. And sometimes I'd cut them down, I'd count the rings, and I'd think, wow, this tree is three to 500 years old. Dendrochronology is the study of trees and especially counting the rings and trees. Uh, the dendrochronologists can't really find a tree in the world that predates the flood. Amen. Now you'll hear some will say, well, this tree, they think it's 5,000 years old, but you know, sometimes a tree will produce more than one ring in a year depending on the, the weather. If there's a burst of rain and then a real hot spell, it kind of gets stunted, then another burst of growth, and you can get more than one ring in a year. But um, it's very interesting. A lot of amazing facts about trees. Would you like to hear a few more? You don't have a choice. <laughs> tallest tree. Now, it's still a matter of conjecture what was the tallest tree in the world, but in 1872, in Victoria, Australia, lumberjacks fell a mountain ash they believe was 500 feet tall. Just by perspective, right now, the tallest tree in the world, and they, National Geographic knows where it is and some others in the National Park, it's a redwood, a coastal redwood, and they say it's 365 feet, tallest tree. They say there was a mountain ash in Australia 500 feet. They have confirmed that there was a tree that was 417 feet tall. It wasn't a redwood. It was a Douglas fir. Now, I've seen some very tall Douglas fir trees. And um, the stoutest tree, the widest girth, is in Mexico. It's called the Montezuma cypress. It has a girth of 112 to 113 feet, 5 feet up. There's a European chestnut that once was measured. It was called the tree of 100 horses. It was 204 feet around on the edge of Mount Etna in Sicily. The oldest living tree is called the Methuselah tree. It's one of these bristlecone pines up in uh, the mountains, high in the mountains of central California. The biggest living mass in the world is a tree. I've seen it. It's the General Sherman. It's an inland redwood one of the sequoias, not too far from Yosemite. You know where the tallest oak tree in the world is? Covalo, where are our, uh, our places? If they got an oak tree there, oh, it must be 200 feet tall. I forget what the exact measurement is. And uh, then there's a tree that uh, has the largest shade circumference. It's the Zaman tree in Venezuela. It covers, provides shade for 614 feet. Now you realize a football field is only 300 feet. A shade tree twice the length of a football field. Can you imagine that? Trees are amazing. Most of them, drugs that uh, they produce, many of them come from trees. The Bible says that a man can be like a tree. Well, Jesus once healed a man and uh, he healed his eyes, he was blind, and he did it in stages, and when he first healed his eyes, he looked around, he said, what do you see? He said, I see trees, I see men like trees walking. The man will be like a tree. 
So Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but there's a problem. What's the problem? He's too short. I beg to disagree. The Bible says there was a crowd. The crowd was too tall. If there was no crowd, he wouldn't have had any problem at all seeing Jesus. Why did he want to see Jesus? You know, it's very interesting. Jesus, just before he went up, before he was lifted up, he went down. Jericho is the lowest city in the world. And Jesus, before he went to Jerusalem to die, he went down to Jericho. And it tells us that during that last journey, there was a blind man named Bartimaeus who called out and said, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus finally stopped and he opened that man's eyes. That was on that last journey through Jericho when that happened. But when, when word reached, all the crowd was roaring and there was noise. And Zacchaeus said, what's the commotion? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Now, the Bible tells us that Zacchaeus was a wealthy man, but he also had a bad reputation. See, a publican, if you wanted to curse somebody in Bible times, you could say they were demon-possessed. You might call them a Samaritan, and you'd call them a publican. There's just a few things. And um, they were considered just the off-scouring of society. The publicans, now tax collectors today, they may not be loved anymore, but it's a more respected position than it was back then. Tax collectors back in the days of Jesus were nationals who would basically sell their souls to the Romans to extract money from their own countrymen. They would get a cut and they would give the bulk of it to the Romans. And they figured it would be good to have nationals doing that because they, had, they spoke the language and they could uh, understand the culture. And so they would contract with these individuals to collect taxes for the Roman government. So they were considered traitors. And because they were sort of shut out, they gave up on church and they kind of gave up on the religious life. And uh, they were considered the extreme opposite of the Pharisees. Jesus told a parable one day. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. He goes to the front. And the other was a publican who goes to the back. And the Pharisees, they were very zealous. They were fastidious. They would pay tithe of their seeds in their herb garden. I mean, they, they were very religious. And, uh, you know, it's, we sometimes give the Pharisees a hard time, the ones who believed in righteousness by works. But, you know, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee. I mean, there was a lot of good Pharisees. They were very zealous for holiness, and that's a good thing. But they were trusting in their holiness. And they were so exact and this one Pharisee went into the temple and he stood at the front and he said, Lord, I thank you I'm not as other men. His prayer is a horizontal prayer. He's comparing himself to others. We talked about that last night. I pay tithe of all that I've got and I fast twice a week and I'm thankful I'm not like that publican on in the back. And he scoffs. But the publican, his prayer is a vertical prayer. And he talks to the Lord, not about himself. The Pharisee says, I thank you I'm not like other men. He doesn't talk about others. He confesses his sin. He says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Smote upon his breast, hung his head. Attitude of contrition and humility. And then Jesus shocked the crowd that was listening that day because he said, the publican went home forgiven, justified, and not the Pharisee. And you could probably hear an audible gasp go through the crowd when Jesus said that because everybody thought 
Pharisees deserve the attention of God, and what this Pharisee said in his prayer was perfectly normal. When word of that parable reached Zacchaeus, hope stirred within him that maybe there was hope for him to be saved, because the publicans were something of the mafia back then, and Zacchaeus was the godfather in Jericho. It doesn't say he was just a publican, he was the chief publican. He was the don. That meant that he was notorious. He wasn't famous, he was infamous. And if you are going to be, if you're going to be a publican, the best place to be a publican was Jericho's because Jericho was a city that was really on the crossroads. It's one of the most ancient cities in the world. It goes all the way back to the time of Joshua and before. Lowest city in the world. In the days of Joshua, Joshua pronounced a curse on the city on anyone who dared rebuild it. And it was, of course, rebuilt during the time of Ahab, of all things, a low, low time in the kingdom. And the man who rebuilt the city, he lost two sons in the process. Lost one son when he laid the foundation at the beginning. He lost his other son when he set up the gates at the end. Jericho was a cursed city. And Jesus goes through that low-down cursed city, and there in that cursed city is a cursed man. And he is rich. And Jesus said how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, Christ says that in the previous chapters. And so the disciples said, Lord, if a rich man can't get to heaven, then who can be saved? And the Lord said, well, it may not be possible with men, but all things are possible to God. And then you get to chapter 19, and God shows it's possible. Now, don't take that too far. Yes, there is an example. There are a few examples of rich people that are saved in the Bible, and we love to quote Abraham and Job and Jacob and Isaac. And all of us want to be the exception, and so we strive after riches. And I very rarely hear anyone defending that I don't want to be rich because I know it might be an obstacle. I actually read somewhere in the Spirit of Prophecy where she said that the devil can cast prosperity into a person's path to destroy them. Zacchaeus was rich, but as rich people often discover, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of things you possess, and you can end up becoming a servant of your stuff. In some ways, I think I was happier when I was a hippie, and everything I owned was in my backpack. I mean, I remember to say, hey, you know, what do you, let's just go to Florida. You know, we just hitchhike, go to Florida. And uh, it kind of makes you carefree. When Jesus sent the disciples out preaching, he said, don't even take two pairs of sandals. I want you to travel light so you can go far. God's people can't go very far right now because we are laden down with so much stuff. There has never been a time, and I think you'll agree, in the history of the world when there has been more you can buy and when people owned more things. Materialism has never been as intense and rank as it is in the world today. And a lot of God's people have been blinded, and we have, because we think it's normal, and I'm condemning myself with you just in case you're wondering, we feel like we got to own a little bit of everything because you just see it just seems like a way of life. And money that could be invested in spreading the gospel ends up becoming, it rusts and thieves break through and steal, and if we're worried about that, then we have to buy an alarm system to protect it, which takes more money. 
And I think that the devil has found a very clever way to monopolize the resources of God's people with materialism. Amen? Zacchaeus had everything. He was rich. He was a publican in the most uh, I was going to say ludicrous. That's not the word. Lucrative. Thank you very much. Way most lucrative place to be a publican. (laughs) But he wasn't happy. And then he heard Jesus even asked a publican to be one of his inner circle, part of his cabinet. And he thought, maybe there's hope for me. And he started thinking about this teacher that seemed so close to God, that was working these miracles and, and was turning the world upside down. Then when he heard he was coming to Jericho, he thought, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get a chance. And I can't go in and among the crowd, not only because the crowd's going to block view, but I'm not very popular in town. And if I try to get up close, they'll probably crowd me out. If I'm going to see him, I'm going to have to think ahead and do something extraordinary. And so he saw where Jesus was heading, going up the narrow main street. He knew that there was a sycamore tree on the way. And he said, I'll I'll just go and I'll climb that tree. Now, that may have required him to humble himself somewhat because if you're the richest man in Jericho, you probably got some royal robes. So it must have been a spectacle. This is a tradition, I can't prove it, but the Bible says he was short, but he might have been round as well. (laughs) Because, you know, if you're very wealthy and you're a publican, you don't get a lot of... It's kind of a sedentary job. You sit at the gate and tell people how much to pay, and you eat well. So here you got this man who's well-dressed, and he's short, and he's round, and he's huffing and puffing and trying to get up this sycamore tree that usually has low branches in it. The sycamore tree that's in the Bible, uh, it it was very common in the Middle East. It's nothing like the American sycamore tree with those, you know, five-pointed leaves. The sycamore tree um, was really a form of a primitive fig tree. Now, the figs were edible, but mostly the poor ate them. Sometimes they feed them to the animals. You remember reading about Amos. They said, I was not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I was a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And sometimes they'd feed them to the, the sheep and the goats or the poor people might eat them. But this was one of those sycamore trees. And not only do they have low branches, but you could get sticky climbing up in those trees. I always thought it was interesting. The only two times in the Bible where Jesus was connected with something dying was when he allowed the demons to go into a herd of pigs and he cursed a fig tree because it didn't provide breakfast. And you wonder, was Jesus having a tantrum because he had low blood sugar? Or was there a lesson for us? It was a fruitless tree. A man who's planted by the rivers of water will bear fruit. You know, not only does it say in the New Testament about the trees by the river, the tree of life, but you can even read in the book of Ezekiel, it talks about on either side of the river are trees and their leaves are for the healing. They're for all kinds of medicine. It's almost like Revelation where it says the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. I'm sure it is an extract One of the many cases in Revelation of looking at the Old Testament or reflecting the Old Testament. So he wants to see Jesus and he decides to climb a tree. Somehow the tree was going to be the answer to seeing Christ. 
You know where salvation begins? You must see the Lord. What brought about Paul's conversion? On the road to Damascus, he had a vision and he saw the Lord. What brought about the conversion of the thief on the cross? He saw Jesus lifted up. He looked and he saw Christ beside him. You know, if you ever want to preach about crucified with Christ, that was the man who was crucified with Christ. And he saw Jesus on the cross. He saw the sign above his head. And it brought about his conversion. How about Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord. Seeing, seeing God's goodness, seeing God's glory, seeing God's holiness, ultimately leads us to repentance. And Zacchaeus is about to go through a dramatic conversion, and it begins with seeing God. But he put himself in a position to see God. Amen. Unlike Paul, who didn't know what was going to happen, Zacchaeus sought after a place to see the Lord. That's why Jesus said, if I am lifted up, why does he say lifted up? Why did Moses lift up the serpent in the wilderness? Remember, they were all bitten by serpents, and they were dying from the venom. And God told Moses, make a bronze serpent. Do it quickly because they're dying. And put it on a shepherd's staff and lift it up. And whoever looks, why do you lift it up? So they could see it. That makes sense? In a position of visibility. I'm not up here on the podium because I'm more exalted than you. It's just so you can see me and I'm short. You know, one of the first things people say to me when I, tra I travel and, and I meet people sometimes for the first time and they've watched the program, <laughs> you know what the most common thing I hear? Say, so you're short. <laughs> and uh, it's sometimes the first thing out of their mouth and, and they don't know it. It hurts my feelings a little bit. <laughs> and I usually retort and say, I'm not really short, I'm just concentrated. <laughs> but something about the... Um, the camera angles when they videotape me gives the illusion that I'm bigger than I don't do it on purpose. I don't know why it is, but somehow I'm, I'm they think I'm much taller and they seem so disappointed. <laughs> but that wasn't near as bad as when I went to China. The deepest disappointment I have seen is when I went to China. You see, in China, I preach in Mandarin. They've translated all of our programs and they translated all of our amazing adventure children programs in Chinese. And they didn't just translate it with subtitles. They have me lip syncing. And they hired the people in China that do it for the movies. And they're very good because they do it for the American movies. And so our team in China got the very best lip syncers that do the American movies to lip sync my sermons. And it looks so good. when you, You'd go online. We even have a Chinese. Well, you can see what I'm talking about. So I got there. All these kids would run up to me and start, how do you want you to And I go... And, and what makes it even worse is the translator has a deep, resonating voice. He's just a real powerful voice, you know? <laughs> and so all the kids would run up and tell Pastor Doug, blah, 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 blah. And I'd go, hi, I'm Pastor. And they go, oh. <laughs> and they tug on their parents' coat and they said, how come he's not talking? Oh, he doesn't speak English. They look so disappointed. So yeah, people say, you're short. So what do you do if you want to get taller? Jesus asked a question one time, which of you by taking thought can add a cubit unto your stature? You know what a cubit is? Cubit is about 18 inches. It's the distance between your knuckle and your elbow. And uh, I remember hearing this story once that 
years ago, it was on Paul Harvey's program, The Rest of the Story. I don't know if some of you remember that radio. And I wish I had taken notes, and and because I everything I share about this is really from memory, just hearing it that one time. But there was a man, he was a Filipino gentleman in Southern California, and his life dream was to be a member of the Los Angeles Police Department. Now, why that is, I don't know. Maybe he had watched one of those old programs called Chips or something, and he thought these LA police officers were such brave heroes, and he grew up watching it, and he just wanted to be a police officer. In, in, he lived in Los Angeles, and so he applied to the academy when he was old enough, and they told him when he first applied, they said, you realize there is a minimum height requirement to be an officer. Obviously, they've got to draw the line somewhere. I mean, it's hard, you know, if you get someone two feet tall trying to arrest you and you're a big drug dealer or something. And so I don't know what it is. It's, you know, 5'9 or something. And whatever it was, this man was one inch too short. But he was like 19 years old. And he said, look, I'm not done growing. By the time the academy studies are over, he says, I've got some ideas. I've been, I, can, I can grow. It's only one inch. Don't worry. And they said, look, we keep a very strict standard. Unless you're 5'9", we will not give you a job. So you're going to spend your time and money in the academy. And he said, no problem. He says, it's a, I'm, I'm going to be, don't worry, I will be tall enough. Because he had it in his head that one inch, anyone can figure out a way to gain one inch. And so he began to try to take in all these vitamins and supplements. And he went to the doctor and said, what can you give me? I've heard about growth hormones. And the doctor said, look, the growth hormones only happen, help you if you're an adolescent and your growth is uh, unnaturally stunted. They said, they're not going to help you once you're through puberty. And so then he started uh, to try to stretch himself. And he would hang from a bar. He tried hanging by his feet, but it lasted about 10 minutes till he blacked out. He'd go to sleep at night, and he had a bed with, med, uh, with metal frames, and he'd put bungee cords you know, those rubberized cords on his ankles and his wrists and try and stretch himself out. And then he'd run to the doctor. And, you know, there, there at the academy, there was a doctor that did the medicals, and he'd say, measure me. And the doctor would measure him. And do you know, it is true that you are actually, uh, you can be as much as a quarter of an inch taller in the morning when you wake up than you are at the end of the day. Because through the day, the weight from your torso all compresses your spine, and you may actually be a little shorter. I took a nap today. I don't know if I look any taller right now to you. <laughs> but uh, so he'd run in, and they were impressed that he had somehow gained uh, between an eighth and a quarter of an inch. But they said, look, we, you know, that's not going to be enough. And he was trying everything he could think of to grow. And finally, he told his mother, there's a surgery. It's an unusual surgery, and it's painful, and it's expensive where usually it's reserved for people that struggle with dwarfism, where they break the bones in your legs, and they put these outside braces and clamps on, and where the bone is broken, they pull it apart, and the bone actually slowly grows in, and it fills the gap. And it takes a long time, and it's very painful and expensive to even get a half an inch or an inch out of that by unnaturally, and it leaves scars. And he was telling his mother about it, and she's thinking to herself, how much this is going to cost? And she said, we're not going to do that. She said, I have found a way for you to gain the other three quarters of an inch that you need. He said, what is it? What is it? He was so excited. She said, I'll, I'll show you in the morning. So he went to sleep. He was so excited he could barely sleep. In the morning, he woke up for breakfast. And he said, 
what is it I need to know? She said, just sit down, eat your scrambled eggs. Sit down, eat your breakfast. I'll show you. It's, I'm going to show you after breakfast. We ate his breakfast. He said, what is it? She says, the answer to how to grow that extra three quarters of an inch, I want you to look out the kitchen door. It's going to be outside. So he's so excited, he opened the kitchen door and he looked outside and while he wasn't looking, his mother took this cast iron frying pan and she walloped him over the head, <laughs> sent him to the ground and he was sitting there dazed and rubbing his head and he said, why did you do that? She said, now quick, go to the doctor, have him measure you. <laughs> it raised a bump about three quarters of an inch on top of his head. <laughs> he showed up at the doctor's office, so the story goes, and they felt so sorry for him, they realized he was going to kill himself trying. And so they let him join the L.A. Police Department. Now, he went through all of that to try to grow one inch. Which of you, by taking thought, can add a cubit to your stature? Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he had a problem. The problem was that he's too short. You know, we all have a problem. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners. We are selfish in our natures. How are we going to get where we can see Christ? Jesus said, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know that cross, you can read in Acts chapter 5, verse 30, Peter said, Jesus Christ, whom you slew and hung on the tree, Keep in mind, Jesus died on a tree. Typically, in most Christian literatures and the artists' pictures of the cross, they've got this beautiful piece of, you know, eight-by-eight eight lumber that has been planed and cut into a nice square, and then their cross pieces are affixed together, and then Jesus is hung on this cross. That's how it's usually pictured. But the Romans did not waste expensive lumber on the criminals. They would take a straight section of tree... They would hack it down, they'd dissect it, they'd wrap the intersecting pieces together. It might not be perfectly square. And they'd hang the criminals up there. Jesus died on a tree. The Bible says, cursed is everyone that is hung upon a tree. Jesus took the curse for you and me. See, in the Bible, there's two kinds of trees in the beginning. One was a tree of life, and one was a tree of death. And Jesus died on the tree of death so that he could provide for us the tree of life. And if you want to eat from the tree of life, you need to be willing to take up your tree of death. Whoever would come after me, do you think being crucified is easy? Being a Christian, I, I often hear people say, you know, the Lord does it all. And it is true that God gets credit for everything in the success of our sanctification. But there's something you need to do. But don't fool yourself into thinking there's nothing you need to do. The greatest struggle, and you'll find this in the book Steps to Christ and Desire of Ages and many others, the greatest struggle is that struggle against self. What Jesus went through in the Garden of Gethsemane, we must all go through. Before he went to the cross, it was a struggle. It's a struggle against self. My biggest problem is not the trials on the outside, it's Doug Batchelor on the inside. He's my biggest problem. Selfishness. And denying yourself and taking up your cross 
if you want the tree of life, you've got to take up the other tree and be dead to self. You know, it's wonderful in some respects when you are crucified. I heard the girl sing special music. I didn't see her because I was at, in my car listening on the radio. I'd forgotten something. I was going back to my hotel room, coming back over again, and I heard her singing about the thief on the cross. And she sang those lines that he didn't have to fear man. All he had to fear was God. And that's true. You know, it's sort of liberating when you get to where you are crucified to self. I've never done a funeral where I saw the dead person be offended by anything anyone said at the funeral or anything they neglected to say. They seem totally disconcerned. And you know, a lot of the gripes and the problems that you run into in churches, it's because someone's pride was hurt, someone's selfishness. Boy, and I tell you, if you really want to see the sparks fly, wait until nominating committee. Someone doesn't get the position they thought they should get or they thought they should get again, and someone else got it. And what an opportunity for sanctification Nominating committee brings out the best sometimes. Sometimes it brings out the worst. It's because self in marriages is one of my least favorite things. I'll just tell you right now. Maybe it's because my name's Bachelor, but marriage counseling. And uh, I mean, I love to see reconciliation, but usually it's the result of selfishness on the part of one or both and pride. And if we could be crucified with Christ, if we would climb that tree, I think we'd find a lot more victory. So he climbs the tree because he wants to see Jesus. And you know, when I get to heaven, I want to play this DVD. It'll be three-dimensional, I think, there. Jesus is going up the narrow streets, the cobblestones in Jericho, and the people are mobbing him on every side. And uh, as the crowd begins to pass under the tree, there's a crowd kind of that's going before the parade before Jesus, they look up and they see Zacchaeus and they all, he's notorious. They all know who he is and they're scoffing and they're laughing and they're shaking their heads and they're spitting. Look at him up there. And uh, he, he doesn't care. He just wants to see Jesus and he sees this sea of faces coming underneath him and he's scanning the crowd. It doesn't take long before his eyes fall upon someone that seems to be the center of attention and this individual that's got this majestic bearing and this loving expression, and what especially captures his attention is he's looking right at him. Jesus knows who's looking for him. If you seek for him, he will be found of you. And Zacchaeus was making an effort to see the Lord, and the Lord revealed himself. But he made an extraordinary effort. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will search for me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And Zacchaeus climbed a tree. He wanted to see Jesus so bad, he's willing to humble himself in front of everybody else and be crucified. He climbed a tree and Jesus comes and he stands just short of the branch where Zacchaeus is perched and he stops his forward progress and the whole crowd is wondering what's up. And Jesus addresses him and it says, when Jesus came to the place, verse 5, Luke 19, he looked up and he saw him. And he said, Zacchaeus. Now right there, I think he almost fell out of the tree because they'd never met before. And he addressed him by name. The Lord who numbers the stars and he names the stars. He calls them all out by their name. 
I was watching an astronomy program earlier this week, and the astronomers now, cosmologists say, they estimate there are about as many stars, they realize a star is a sun, it's not counting planets, there are approximately as many stars in the observable universe as there are grains of sand in the world. Isn't that mind-boggling? I mean, why even put a number to it when it gets to that point? And he knows all their names. Jesus said, even the very hairs of your head are numbered. That's more of a miracle for you than it is for me. <laughs> but it's still a miracle nonetheless. And he calls them by name. He knew every detail of his life. And he looked at him not with a look that he usually got from the religious leaders of scorn and disgust, but he looked at him with love and acceptance. Zacchaeus, make haste. What does that mean? When Jesus calls you to come to him, how does he call you to come? Do what thou doest quickly. <laughs> come now. Someone said, Lord, I want to follow you, but first I've got to bury my father. He said, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. When you hear the Lord calling, you don't wait. Some people wait until it's too late. One of the devil's favorite words is manana, tomorrow. Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Wow. He's not only calling Zacchaeus to come to him. Jesus said, I'm going to come to you. Come to me, and I, I want to abide with you. That's personal. That's showing acceptance. And Jesus said he wants to sup with us. That's what he says in Revelation. I stand at the door and the knock, and if you'll open the door, and if you hear my voice, that means he's not only knocking, he's calling. And whoever opens the door, you've got to make a choice. He says, I will come in. I'll abide with you. Wow, what a great privilege that the God of all creation is willing to abide in your lives. He passes by and he gives us an opportunity and he says, come to me, and I will abide to you, with you. So he made haste. I think he made extra haste. I think he may have even fallen out of the tree. Because you look a little further down, and you go to verse 8, it says, Then Zacchaeus stood. Now, he was in a tree. How can you stand? He must have either knelt or fallen. Does that make sense? In order to stand up. He made haste, and he came down, and he received him. How do we receive Jesus. It says, joyfully. What is the gospel? Good news. If we were joyful about receiving Jesus, our, you wouldn't be able to stop this message. Uh, so often, believers look more like they're on their way to a funeral than a feast. Being a Christian is good news. Jesus chastised the two on the road to Emmaus. He said, what manner of conversation is this you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Jesus, the angel said, peace and goodwill to men. Rejoice. The gospel is good news. I was dead and now I'm alive. I was lost and now I'm found. I was sick and now I'm well. That's good news. Zacchaeus thought, I had no hope. I had money. I wasn't happy. I had notoriety, even though it was a bad kind. I wasn't happy. But he came to Jesus. And you know what? He didn't care what anybody else thought when he came to Jesus. The devil was probably there saying, you don't want to do this in front of all these people. All he could see was Jesus' face. He wanted to come to Jesus. And so he came out of his tree, 
And he came to Jesus just like he was. But when they, the crowd, when they all saw it, they complained, saying, he has gone to be the guest of all the people he could stay with. And you can understand the dismay of some of the other Pharisees. They're walking up the street with Jesus, and they're wanting to host him. And they're saying, no, why don't you come on over? Come stay. We're going to have a feast. You come to our house. And of all the people that he could come and stay with, he says, I'm going to Zacchaeus' house. Can you understand why they would feel a little rejection? He was the most hated person in town. And they begin to murmur. He's gone to be the guest with him who is a sinner. Well, what did Jesus say? The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. I have not come to call the sick or the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's not those that are well that need a physician, but those that are sick. Do you qualify? And Zacchaeus is so amazed that Jesus is coming to him. It says, then Zacchaeus stood and he makes a promise. Lord, right away he gives his testimony. He publicly confesses and he repents. He says, I give half of my goods to feed the poor. Anyone else out there ready to make that promise tonight? That was really something. I give half. And you know what's amazing? There was a man just a few chapters earlier. Jesus said, follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. Give what you have to the poor. He didn't want to do it. And he went away grieved. Zacchaeus comes to Jesus. He receives him joyfully. And he willingly is able to, he's willing to sacrifice and to give half of his goods to the poor. And then he goes on. The reason he kept the other half, he said, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, false accounting, and that if there he knew that was sort of a rhetorical, I will restore him fourfold. Because, you know, the Bible says that if you stole someone's sheep, you'd pay back four. And so Zacchaeus is converted, and right when he's converted, immediately, he, how much does he lay on the altar for God? He, he values salvation more than anything. Jesus did not even ask the publican to do that. He asked the good man who had kept the commandments, and he said no. He was too attached to his worldly goods. He then goes to the, the sinner, and he says, what profit is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Lord, I'm going to give half to the poor. The other half, I'm going to pay back anybody I've extorted. I just want you in my house. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house inasmuch as he is a son of Abraham. What qualifies you to be a son of Abraham? Is it um, every now and then I'll meet someone that'll say, uh, I'm a third generation Christian. I've been in this denomination for years. And as though in the judgment, God's going to look at your pedigree, your, your family history, you know, ancestry.com. Say, I'm going to save you because you've got two pastors in your family tree. Now, I, I sometimes envy my wife and I are total opposites because my wife has got several generations of Adventist heritage and she went to 12 years of Adventist elementary school and two Adventist colleges to get her degree and she knows or is related to everybody in the church. And I went to a purely pagan, well, some, a couple of Catholic schools, but otherwise pagan education. And, uh, but you know, you have to have a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus. Jesus said, this day, salvation has come to this house. How long do you have to wait before you know salvation has come to your house? How long did Zacchaeus have to wait? As soon as he came to Jesus, 
as soon as he repented and confessed his sin, right then he was adopted and accepted. He received Jesus joyfully. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. You know, uh, salvation begins with seeing the Lord. There's a story I heard that, uh, I know it's just a legend, but years later they said that uh, people going up and down the streets in Jericho would see this uh, short old man sitting by the fig tree and he'd be patting the tree and looking up wistfully into its branches and people would say, something's gone wrong with that old fellow, what's up with him? And they'd ask him and he'd say, oh, this is where I first heard his voice, this is where he said my name, this is where I saw his face under the tree. Jesus came looking for fruit on a fig tree one time and there was nothing and he cursed it. Now Jesus comes to a primitive fig tree, that's what the sycamore was, and he found fruit in the tree. What is the fruit that Jesus wants? He wants souls. Jesus said he wants us to bear the fruits of the Spirit, and the fruit that we bring to him is souls that are saved. One last thought. You know what the word Zacchaeus means? Pure. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? They will see God. And Zacchaeus, he was purified through seeing the Lord. Would you like to see Jesus? Well, he's calling you today. And uh, he wants to abide in your house. He wants you to receive him joyfully. He wants to declare that you are a child of Abraham. Are you willing to do what Zacchaeus did and take up your cross and follow Christ? that you can someday eat from that tree of life? Is that your prayer, friends? If it is, will you stand with me? Let's ask him tonight as we close. Lord, this is a simple story we often say for the children about the wee little man who climbed the tree. But we see tonight that it is really a, a story of profound, deep theology for adults as well about salvation. Lord, we are so thankful that you loved us so much, that you were willing to be cut down, that you were willing to take up your cross, that we might be forgiven and someday eat from the tree of life. But you've told us that if we follow you, it means even following you to Calvary. And each of us, Lord, knows in our hearts what that may mean. And I pray that all of us will realize the value of eternal life. What profit is it if we gain the world and lose our souls? Help us tonight, Lord, to make a decision to choose to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Whatever the sins might be that we're grappling with or battling with, give us the strength by your grace to deny self and take up our cross and follow our Savior that we might then have that joy and that peace that comes from knowing that you will abide in our homes. Pour out your spirit on each person. Answer their prayers, Lord. Make yourself real and bless this camp meeting. We thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.